0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our show about earning a living independently, doing something you really care about. We have two amazing guests on the show today. The first is Barrett Brooks. Barrett was previously a co-host of The Fizzle Show and is now Chief Operating Officer at ConvertKit, which makes email marketing software for creators and was recently named number 23 on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies. Welcome back, Barrett. Barrett. Why, thank you. (laughs) Always, always with the snarky welcome comments. We're also joined today by Jeff Goins. Uh, Jeff has been on the show several times before. Jeff is the best-selling author of five books, including The Art of Work and Real Artists Don't Starve. You can find Jeff over at GoinsWriter.com. Thanks for being on the show again, Jeff.
1: Glad to be here, Corbett.
0: Awesome. Glad to have you both here. Uh, Today, I wanted to start with some commentary on something that Barrett wrote a while back, which was actually, I think, based on an article or a question by James Clear. And this, this question is, what are you optimizing for? What does that mean, Barrett? Dig deeper. What does that mean to, to question what you're optimizing for?
2: Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll give a little color commentary on how I came to the question from James. I decided that pretty much any occasion in life to get friends from all across The country so on the internet you end up with friends all across the country number one so any occasion to get them together is a good one and uh, we're having our first child this year my wife and i and so i decided i would have a Dachelor party (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, i don't i don't uh, i don't don't get it uh uh-huh yeah anyways (laughs) uh, so i got a group of friends together up in vancouver washington and uh we just stayed in a little airbnb together And we were having dinner one night and I I said, okay, so last night, you know, I asked a bunch of questions to try and get us to go deeper. Cause when you get a bunch of people together, you don't want to just kind of shoot the shit. You want to actually have good conversations. And so I actually asked if anyone at the table had any good conversation or conversation starters, deep questions like that for, for us for that night. And so James popped in and of course he said, uh, I've actually got a list here on my phone that I maintain.
0: (laughs) That he's been (laughs) saving to
2: bring to this exact occasion. Exactly. Yeah. And so he said, you know, one of them that I have that I'm thinking a lot about is what are you optimizing for? And he elaborated on it, basically saying that, um, you know, we all make choices in life about how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we spend our money. And uh, the premise of the question is basically what are you using your resources to uh, obtain, whether it's things or more money or, you know, time with loved ones or whatever. And it led to some really great conversation because sometimes I don't, it's unconscious. You know, we don't think about what we're optimizing for. We just kind of, we're on autopilot and we end up where we end up. Uh, And so it led to some great conversation. And basically I wrote this article outlining my thoughts on what I think I'm optimizing for and why I make some of the decisions I make and I use writing as a way of teaching myself. Basically, it's it's solidifying my thoughts and teaching myself my own thoughts. And so, what I ended up arriving at was that I think I try and optimize for moments of joy. Um, and previously, I, I think there were times where I optimized for progress or more money or um, you know a feeling of accomplishment or something like that. But as I've as time's gone on, and especially as we've developed a really good group of friends here in Portland, and you realize that. Uh, A lot of times money is just a means to get to situations where you're with people you care about, doing something you enjoy, and you can just kind of sit back and say, wow, how lucky are we in this moment right now to be experiencing this just moment in time, whether, you know, uh, Corbett and I here, we have a great group of friends in Portland and one of them has a a beautiful backyard with a hot tub and a pool. And all summer, we just go over there and hang out in the backyard and everyone would bring some meat to throw on the grill or, or make something in the oven. And we just kind of sit on the chairs or take a dip in the pool or whatever. And it's pretty special, you know, and there's nothing unique particularly about any given night, but the experience of doing that repeatedly creates these little moments of, um, belonging and joy that I've found that I really want to be optimizing for. So anyways, that's a lot of con- more, maybe more context than you wanted right off the bat, but that was basically what the article was about.
0: Jeff, you and I have, um, it seems like whenever we get together, either we, uh, just joke about inane <laughs> stuff or yeah. we go super deep and end up like questioning the nature of reality and existence. Yeah. Uh, Last time you were here at WDS, we were talking with um, Vanessa and Scott Edwards, which was lovely. And um, I think, you know, when you're around entrepreneurs a lot, you kind of end up realizing that we all carry a lot of baggage around uh, from life. And then also just from building businesses and uh, having to stare ourselves in the face every Monday morning, sitting in front of our laptop, wondering what we're doing this for. You've kind of had an evolution over the years, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us where your head's at now. What are you optimizing for?
1: Well, I, um, I, th- I, I believe that you can't know what you want until you get enough things that you don't want, right? Uh, that you think you wanted and you do this thing and you're like, this is not what I really wanted. And you just become more clear um, through taking action. And I think we're really terrible predictors of what's going to make us happy and what's going to bring us joy. And even in that article that Barrett wrote, you know, he talks about these very, like, simple, seemingly mundane moments that were uh, incredible moments for him. And I'm often surprised by the moments that um, touch me, you know, in, in, a, in a profound way. And um, And then I'm also surprised by the things that I thought would be amazing, and they're not. And so my experience of starting and growing an online business and doing all the things that I thought would make me happy and give me the things that I wanted, I was doing it pretty unconsciously didn't. I was just sort of underwhelmed by the whole thing. And I thought, well, what is this about? If like having the seven-figure business and the best-selling books just makes me hungrier for more, what is this about? I could either keep playing this game or consciously choose to play another game. And I didn't know that there was another game that you could play. And recently I heard um, uh, Adam Grant ask a similar question to Malcolm Gladwell. And it was, it was posted on, on Gladwell's podcast. And it was um, I think part of the 92 why thing that they do in New York. And he basically like Adam Grant asked Gladwell this like question, which is like, what is your mission? And I think when you get a bunch of entrepreneurs together, everybody starts pretending like they're Steve Jobs, right? And they like become Simon Sinek and explain their why, right? And um, and so I think Adam Grant was sort of expecting this from, from Gladwell. He goes, what's your mission? And uh, Malcolm just sort of sits and pauses for a moment. He goes, well, I don't want to be bored. And like Adam Grant will not let him get away with this. I think he had just gotten done writing the book originals. And so he was like, come on, Malcolm, like you write these books that like change our collective consciousness and the way people uh, experience life and reality and have conversations around dinner tables. Like, what are you trying to do? He's like, I'm trying to not be bored. And that was such a relief to hear, uh, for me, somebody at that level is really perceiving their work as play. And, and I think you actually see this in, in the work of Malcolm Gladwell. Like, he'll make this, like, staunch, he'll take this, this, this stand on a certain issue, uh, like affirmative action. And then, like, a few books later, he's like, I was wrong about that. Yeah? And, and he's done this over and over again. And he's, I've heard him say in interviews that he's very comfortable with changing his mind and so the, as, the best I can tell, it's not that dissimilar from Barrett's um, answer. The best I can tell is that because I get bored easily, what I'm trying to optimize for is fun. And it doesn't mean that like I don't have bills to pay and deadlines to meet and things that I need, obligations that I need to fulfill. But at the end of the day, more often than not, I'm trying to have fun and I'm, I'm optimizing for that. I'm leaving room in my life for fun. And so when I had a business with 12 employees and I was like living the dream and I was personally netting less income than I was with a, you know, a, biz- a business that was a fraction of the size, but like everybody thought I was making it, I wasn't having fun. And I was like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? And for a while, I let people believe a story about myself. I was successful because I was doing things a certain way. But it just like it was dumb. It wasn't interesting, right? Like I was having to leave. I was having to leave the house early in the morning before my kids were done with breakfast to go to a meeting that I didn't want to be at that I had set up. (laughs) I was like, what? What am I doing to myself? And if you
0: didn't want to be there, imagine what the other people felt.
1: (laughs) But it's such a dumb thing that so many entrepreneurs do to themselves because they're trying to live into a story. That they inherited somewhere. And what I found so refreshing about that lunch that we had together, the, the four of us, is we all kind of got pretty honest about what we wanted and it wasn't necessarily what other people expected us to want. And I think that kind of clarity is beautiful.
0: Follow-up question. If you are optimizing for fun, are there things that you can ignore or expense that you'll be sorry you did? Or are there things that, because you two have been through the ringer already, that you are unconsciously or automatically keeping on the back burner along with your pursuit of fun? So if someone's listening to this and just thinking, like, oh, I'm just starting out, I better not, you know, try to make a bunch of money or I better not try to find fulfillment in my work. I'm just going to try to have fun. Uh Where are they going to go wrong?
1: Well, I think having money is fun. Money that you can actually spend and enjoy is is very fun. And it's a lot more fun than being broke because I've been on both sides of that. Um, But there's a point at which you have so much money and you have to make more and maintain a certain lifestyle that you can't enjoy any of it. So the way I got clear on my mission what, I told this to my team one time, which I had whittled down from like 12 people to like two people. I said, guys, this is not going to inspire you. But really what I want is to make more money than most people and work less than most people. Like that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Not trying to change the world. Like I want to do what I do, make a comfortable living without having to work like a dog to do it. And they're like, okay, that sounds cool. You know, and, and, and I remember having, hiring a business coach and he was like, because I was like ha- having trouble motivating my team. And I was like, we need a better mission statement. We need these values. He's like, dude, you are not driving little old ladies in wheelchairs to see the Grand Canyon for the first time before they die. Most people just want to get paid and have fun doing it. And if you can provide that in a workplace setting, you're doing pretty good. So I think, for me, that actually means like, well, what does fun look like? Well, fun looks like not having any meetings in the morning it means I can go for a walk or a run. It means I can go out to eat every day for lunch and it not break the bank account. It means I can come, come home every day at four and play with my kids and I have to open the laptop before 10 AM the next day. It means that I have uh, autonomy over the projects that I take on. And so that, that, that affects the decisions that I make in terms of, um, what I'm going to take on, what I'm going to commit to, whom I'm going to partner with, you know, how that's going to work. And I think Derek Sivers has a thing about this. Like, are you optimizing for freedom, fortune, or fame? And most people would say freedom, but they're really optimi- You're trying to optimize for all three or they're being dishonest about it. And I'm moving more in the direction of freedom. I'm not all the way there. Um, but fun for me, I think really is – being the one who can change things pretty quickly without a lot, a lot of emotional or financial fallout, and so that has just kind of limited the decisions that I've made and changed the decisions that I've made. Does that does that answer some of those questions?
0: It does. Okay. Um, Barrett, in in your case, you have a huge team. You've got you've got a lot of yeah. responsibilities on your plate. Yeah. So, uh, in in Jeff's answer, um, I sense that. He's optimizing for fun and and he talked a lot about doing that in the work context. In your context, I think you were talking a little bit about outside of work. Mm -hmm. What do you optimize for with your work?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I thought your last one was a your last question was a good one because it acknowledges the trade-offs, you know. And there are two kind of uh, I don't know, maybe mental models or frameworks I would use to answer the question. So one is uh that I shared in the article, enough versus more in a mindset of understanding what enough is. And I think defining enough has to be in the context of what you're optimizing for. So for me, if I'm optimizing for moments of joy, then there's a certain amount of money every year that uh, I want to make in order to make that possible. So being that I have friends all over the country, um, I want to be able to see them regularly. Those are when I experience joy or being that our friend group here in Portland enjoys taking weekend trips together to go camping or to the coast or whatever. That requires money too. And so there's, you know, you can't just ignore everything else in the name of having fun or experiencing moments of joy, because I think that actually you um, end up with less of what you're optimizing for if you don't create balance and understand what enough of the other things are. Uh, The other framework that I think about is short term versus long term. You know, how do I have fun today or how do I have joy today versus how do I experience uh, consistent? moments of joy over a long period of time are two different questions. Today, I could quit my job, I could uh, not, you know, fulfill my obligations in any area of my life, and I could probably have joy for an amount of time. And then there would be stress that would follow that because there wouldn't be any more sources of income, I would be neglecting my responsibilities at home and whatever else. So there's some amount of trade off that we have to make to get the thing that we're optimizing for. And I think we just have to acknowledge that other things in life help us get what we want at the end of the day. Um, but when it comes to work, to go back to this question, uh, I, I feel very challenged and enlivened by the experience of hiring and managing people. I love that. I love the way I've always framed it to teams that I've managed, uh, especially at ConvertKit, is I want to help people do the best work of their lives. I want to help people put out the best work product that they've ever put out. Because my experience of seeing people Realize potential they didn't necessarily know they had, or that they knew they had, but that they have never really fulfilled before is pretty special. And that's a lot of, that's an experience of joy in and of itself. Um, And so my approach to that is if we can give more people an experience of showing up to an organization they really enjoy working for, doing work that they really care about and do better work than they've ever done before, well, that's, I'm like optimizing on two ends there. I'm both getting money to experience joy outside of work and I'm creating moments in the work that I truly enjoy along the way. And so I kind of get like the best of both worlds there.
0: Jeff, uh, you you mentioned, uh, I think from an article from Derek Sivers, this triangle of mm-hmm. fame, fortune and freedom. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious uh, from your standpoint, what role fame plays in your ability to have fun and enjoy mm-hmm. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's your, – you're internet famous at least. Uh, people know you, you. You speak at conferences. You reach sure. millions of people through your blog and so on. And um, again, you know, having been through it, I think it's easy to say, uh, you know, I don't need that. But mm. there's, some, there's some part of us that feeds off of that like notoriety of being recognized, of, you know, people seeing us, you know, in public and, and recognizing you, that sort of thing. mm mm-hmm. What role does that play for you in, in the happiness that you experience and um, how much do you seek it out now? Yeah, I, I think it's,
1: you know, obviously disingenuous to say money doesn't matter now that I have a you know, big old pile of, of it over here uh, or, you know, fame doesn't matter now that enough people know who I am that I can say, say that people <laughs> hear it, right? Um, I, di- I did have a conversation with Seth Godin years ago where he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, "I, I want to change the world with ideas." He's like, "Uh-huh, how are you going to like how?" You know and he just like really forced me to actually say what I wanted, which was, "Well, I guess I just want to like um write books and share my ideas and get paid well to do it and know that people are listening. He's like, "Okay, cool, that's a real thing. Uh, how many people do you need in order to make that happen, and how much money do you need??" He's like,." He's, he's like, you probably need more than 10 people to listen to you to feel like you're making that kind of impact. Yeah. He goes, so how many is it? A 1, 10, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000? I was like, yeah, maybe 100,000. That feels like a lot of people. And he's like, great. How many people are listening to you now? I was like, more than that. He's like, so when do you give yourself permission to, to do the work that you said you wanted to do? So it's not that I think any of these things are bad, but I got caught up in the more. And so I think sometimes we think that like, uh, there's this, well, you know, look at this person who's super famous or successful or wealthy and that's, you know, they're on like VH1 behind the scenes and and they're homeless and a drug addict or something. Therefore money is bad. Fame is bad. Instead of seeing these things as tools, seeing money and fame as tools to get what we really want. And, um, and so I think what I was allowed to do after you know, working really hard for several years is just kind of settle into this space of, well, I'm not that person. I don't have that level of fame. I don't have those resources, but I think I have enough to do what I set out to do. And what if I stopped trying to get a new fan uh, and started drilling down on the audience that I already have and go deeper with people, which it turns out is what I really want to do. I am somebody who feeds off of not more people knowing my name, which I thought I did. And there was a part of me that enjoyed that. But what I actually enjoy is feeling understood. And so if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, that podcast, that book, that thing that you wrote, I got it. And they tell me why they got it. And it spoke to something deep at a soul level. That gives me more joy than a bunch of people saying, you're the best. But that's like, but but it's a thing, like it's it's an actual it's it's a level of fame and interaction with somebody that allows that. And so I think um, you know, if Barrett's seeking out moments of joy, I'm seeking out moments of understanding connection, and I'm not a surface level guy. And I realized that in order to get more fame, I would just have to keep sort of swimming on the surface. And it, and it became less and less fun to do that. So I think that's what I was starting to experience. Like, this is not what I want to do. Can I take the work that I've done and dive down deep, understanding there's a cost to that. I may never have millions of fans, but I have enough people that I can connect with at a deep level and be fully present too. And when I started doing that, like the work just became more meaningful, more enjoyable. And it was easier from a business standpoint because I realized, oh, my job is not to sell, you know, little $2.99 widgets to millions of people. It's to find maybe a hundred or a few hundred people every year to pay me a good chunk of cash and I can work with them, uh, you know, in an ongoing basis, which is the direction that I'm moving in these days with the business is going deeper with fewer
0: people. Uh, Barrett, from your standpoint, uh, you've, you've, um, Kind of straddle of the line you 've been you've you've been in the forefront you 've you know hosted the podcast and and uh, run your own blog, but you 've also been in the background running businesses and mm. being an operator and um, you you embarked on something a few years ago that you had always talked about when we were working together at fizzle, uh, and that is running a conference and mm. I imagine that running a conference has really change your profile to some degree. You're up there on stage, you're the MC, you're introducing the guests, you're helping select the guests and so on. Um, and I'm curious, just looking back on the last, you've done three now, right? Three yep. ConvertKit conferences, craft and commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking back on that, uh, what has that done for your personal happiness, and brand, excluding Mm. the business results right now. Just for you personally, what has it meant putting on a conference?
2: Yeah. I'll share a stupid little anecdote that relates to the concept behind the conference in terms of how I see it and what I've enjoyed about it. Um, My wife and I joke that one day I'm going to team up with someone. Um, In my head, it's always Baron Quadro, uh, which some listeners of the show might recognize his name. And make a, sh- a podcast called Good Taste, a podcast for maturing men. Uh, <laughs> with the idea being that, um, I don't know, I have these ideas in my head of like this life I'm going to curate and that I will enjoy. And it's things like having my library of books in my office. And it's things like um, having a dinner table where I can have eight friends over for a home-cooked meal. Um or whatever it might be, you know, there's like different versions of it. And one of the things, one of these like visions in my head for that satisfies my sense of taste is an event that I would want to attend and that I would really want to go to. And uh, Nathan Berry, who's the CEO of ConvertKit and I, and actually actually I think all of us maybe met at uh, an event called World Domination Summit here in Portland. And ultimately that was the thing that ended up sparking my wife and I moving to Portland as well. And, you know, it's coming into its 10th year in 2020 and it's going to come to a close. And I've always loved that event. And then there were aspects of it that I was like, oh man, if I could do my own thing, like here's some things I might do a little bit differently, or here's like how I would have less people or a different stage set up or a different curated lineup of speakers or whatever. And that doesn't take anything away from any other event. It just was my version of what I wanted to create. And so in some ways that Conference craft and commerce has become an expression of my sense of taste as pretentious as that sounds. Um, and it's brought to life some ideas that I just had in my head for a really long time of how you can create an event where people really want to show up. They don't feel like they're being sold something the whole time. Um, they are listening to story. Like I think of the main stage as a place to share stories because stories I think are the thing that really inspire us and stories create when we're not teaching we're sharing so i think of stories as being a sharing of your background your personality your journey whatever it might be it gives everyone in the audience a chance to connect with whatever part of it they can connect with you know they tell their own version of it to jeff's point they they understand themselves differently because of you being understood by telling your story and then this workshop you know, aspect of it is where we go teach and it's like very tactical and technical and everything. Um, we really try and attract people who are earning a full-time living to the conference so that it's truly a peer group sitting in the seats together. And there's no one that's really like above anyone else. You know, it's just really degrees to which people are earning a full-time living. Um, you know, we've got a couple parties throughout the weekend that I love dance parties. So the closing party is just a big dance party, which I'm sure some people hate me for. Um, But then through all of it, the thing that has been so much fun is I get to stand up on the stage and like, you know, introduce people and and set the tone really is what I think. It's like I am the verbal code of conduct. I am the embodiment of what we're trying to create in terms of environment and relationship and interaction between both attendees, but also attendees and speakers. Um, And so it's become this external expression of me trying to create an environment that I've always wanted, basically. And then getting that feedback from people that, hey, this is a thing I really love. And to Jeff's point, it's not that many people. You know, I think 300 people or 350 people or something like that attend or have attended to uh, each of the first three. But for those people, it was so impactful. And yeah, you know, like it raised my profile with 300 people <laughs> it wasn't a lot of people but all those people feel deeply connected to me you know it's similar to being on the show where people hear your voice in their ears on an ongoing basis and then they're like i know that person even though we don't know hardly any of them but then when they come to you you know jeff to your point earlier and they say i read this thing i heard this thing i watched this thing that you did and it helped me learn xyz about myself now you realize, oh, wow, that that thing really mattered. You know, this vision I had that I brought to life really mattered for someone.
0: And the side benefit is maybe hearing a few hundred people laugh at your dad jokes.
2: Right, right. Well, that's a very core front (laughs) benefit that's not a side benefit. Yeah, the, I was there though. Nobody laughed. That was the side part. <laughs> it's fine. I always laugh hardest at my own jokes. Anyway, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You
0: know, Barrett's got a good one loaded when he starts laughing as he's delivering it. <laughs> that's uh, right. Jeff, you have run your conference now for uh, five Coming years. up on five. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Tell that's us about five. it. What? What? What's the conference about, and and why did you start it?
1: So we started a conference called tribe conference based on a course that I had taught for writers called tribe writers. And it was, you know, teaching this online course for what ended up being thousands of people, uh, really that community, um, was asking for some way to get together. And in fact, some people were driving several several hours across state lines to meet up with each other. Like when you create an online community, you guys have all seen this. And I, I've been to you know fizzle meetups in all kinds of cities and things, where when people connect online, uh, there is this desire to deepen the connection with real in-person interactions. And what I love about, you know, knowing you guys and knowing a lot of my friends these days is that somebody will ask me, how do you know that person? I'm like, well, kind of the way I know everybody, which is I met them on the internet at some point. And then we met in person and kind of became real friends. It like it it deepens the connection, you know? Um, And so people were just asking for it. And so we did it as an experiment. Um, I was like, all right, I'll do a conference and I'll plan it in 90 days and we had 150 people show up and it wasn't a failure and at the conference we sold next year's ticket which half the room bought and so I was like I guess we have to do this again and it just went that way I mean it was I think most creative things that I'm doing I just do them to see if I can get away with them Uh, like honestly the the reason I started an online course was because I bought um start a blog that matters uh When uh, you know you were doing when Corbett, you were doing you know think traffic stuff, and I was I was like, what is a ninety nine dollars? It was ninety nine dollars. I was like, what does a ninety nine dollar course you know look like? And then I remember asking, how many of these did you sell? And you are like, I think like five hundred. I was like, you just made fifty grand doing that. Like this was magic to me. And I was like, can I get away with this too without the cops knocking on my door? So most things that I've done have been that. And then at some point, you're like, okay, is there another reason that I'm doing this? Uh, And so for me, similar to what Barrett was talking about, the events became a place for us to try new things. And I I went to WDS and a couple of other conferences that were so different from like being in a hotel um, uh, uh, banquet hall, you know? Uh, that inspired me to go. Oh, you can do! You can have lots of fun and create meaningful, life changing experiences for people in a weekend just by getting them in a room together and and creating an experience. And I have a background in music and theater, and so I was like, I get that, and I think that would be super fun. And and I, you know, also found a way to make it fun for myself by you know dressing up in various costumes and things. <laughs> um, but what's interesting about the conference is it has become a metaphor for. All of the work that I do, which is that I always wanted it to be bigger. I never sought for what it was. I couldn't accept that it was different, you know. And so I was sort of embarrassed by the fact that we only had like 200 to 300 people every year. And I remember telling my team at like year after year three, where we had like 270 people come. I was like, "Great, we're going to get 500 people the next year, then a thousand, then 10,000." And my whole team was like, "That's awesome." Nobody wants that except you. Like everybody comes enjoying the fact that there's only a couple hundred people here. And I was like, but, but, but it's got to be bigger. And there was this point it actually happened last year where I just decided to settle. And this was, you know, all this stuff was building, but the conference was like a, a, a small piece, a, a microcosm of what was happening in my life and work where I was like, what if I just decided to like settle down? and enjoy what I've done instead of like, it's like having a conversation with somebody and they're looking over your shoulder at the like next cooler person that's going to walk in the room, which I always do with Barrett. Cause <laughs> there's gotta be someone better
0: coming. And you're
1: always looking for when I'm going to walk in the door. That's, that's right. Saying? That's right. And like, what sneakers is he going to wear? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like, I, I was tired of doing that, you know? Like, it's just not a fun way to live and work where you're constantly seeing it for what it's not instead of of what it is. So it was just an experiment, a project. And last year, this year, I mean, this, we just did it a month or so ago. It was the fifth year. And I decided to, like, that was the final year. We told people last year that this would be the last year. And it was so enjoyable because it was just a project and the project was over and it was people launched their own events out of it it inspired other people to start events um and i was so happy with it and and yet i i knew that it was done and i i didn't practice saying this but i but people were asking why are you doing this this is so good we like this and in the final little wrap up keynote that i did at the event um i heard myself say this thing that i didn't prepare saying but it was like this is this is it and i said you know um Sometimes the bad has to end before the good can begin. But other times the good has to end before the better can begin. Hmm. And and that's how I saw it. It was a good thing, but I wanted to make more room in my work for the next thing. And so I, I you know, sunsetted it and you know, I don't know what the next thing will be, but it was a lot of fun and I, I learned a lot.
0: Don't you feel like that's the, the scariest thing to overcome as uh, an entrepreneur or just anybody making a decision in general, which is you've got something that's going well, yeah. but you, you feel like there's something else out there for you and right. deciding to close something down that is by all accounts a success and everybody yeah. else looking at you is like, wait, right. what are you doing? Right. How do you?
1: Yeah. How do you?
0: How do you get over that hurdle and and actually make that decision?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear Barrett's take on this, but I'll I'll, I'll try. Um, I I am trying to trust myself more because the more I do that, the more it's it's more cutting edge stuff, and I'm pretty conservative. Like I felt this at like year two, I was starting to get bored, and so I use the conference as a way to innovate and keep exper- experimenting. But I realized a couple things. One, most events tend to peak at year five, at which point you've got to scale the event by doing it in different cities and different locations. Uh, you've got to uh, go smaller where you have like workshop kind of things, um, or you just have to be okay with the natural attrition. Everybody that I know who's a professional event planner and this is their business, they were telling me this. And so I was like, well, this will, like, we'll end on a high note. That's great. I always said I wanted to do it for five years. And I don't know what's next, um, but I'm I'm excited ab- about the prospect of that. And I've learned about myself that like I like starting things. I don't like running things, um, and I don't like I'm not as good of a leader as Barrett. I mean, he loves bringing people together and inspiring them. He's so good at it, and it was really humbling for me to realize this is not what I do. And so what I do is I've got to keep things lean. I'm going to, my career is going to be a series of projects that I start and end because I can't keep investing in more resources to manage all of these different projects. So getting clear on how I work and what I do was really helpful. Um, And then just like realizing, remembering every time I ended that thing that was going pretty good, that was something that lots of other people were doing. And like even when I didn't know what the next thing was, it it always led to something better, and I never regretted ending that relationship, quitting that job, graduating from school. Like even when good things are going, you have to realize like this is not gonna last forever. And I would rather consciously end something when it feels right than keep dragging this thing out. And it's like you know the the horse that you got to take out to the pasture, like, cause we've all been a, a part of things like that. Events, experiences, relationships, you're like, this thing needs to die. And somebody just better call it. And I just don't want to live that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that totally resonates with me. I, I love the idea of a series of projects and I think so much of this ties back to, uh, to knowing yourself and knowing what you're trying to create in your career and in your life of these moments for me was uh shutting down my first um my first business and knowing whether it was time to do that or whether i just needed to keep going and honestly i think either one could have been the right answer but for where i was at and what i needed in my life at the time um I needed to shut it down. I needed to move on in order for me to continue growing at the rate that I wanted to grow and needed to grow at that point in my career. Uh, ultimately, I needed to come to work for you, Corbett. At the time, I needed mentorship. I needed guidance. I had kind of made this big leap into starting my first business, and I didn't know what I needed to know to be successful at that yet. Um, and once I once I had a mentor help me work through that fact that I had learned a ton. You know, I had spent almost three years on building this business. Um, And I had gotten better than an MBA's worth of education from it, that I had chosen a bad customer base to be my customer. At the time, I had chosen college students who don't have money and were eternally going to be bad customers. Um, And three, that it was okay if that was what the purpose was, was for me to learn, not to create a big business that was successful forever and ever out of it. It was like, oh, so you're saying I could shut this down, be proud of it, call it a success, and then move on to something else? Huh, that's completely different from feeling like I've completely failed. I'm going to be bankrupt. I'm shutting my business down, and everyone's going to think I'm a shameful, horrible entrepreneur for the rest of my life. And I think realizing, having that attitude towards it, that success could also mean quitting in that moment, that was a big moment of growth for me. Cause my entire life, you just don't quit. You don't quit things, period. Um, and I think it comes down to knowing the difference between when it's time to quit versus when you're just experiencing hardship and growth. And I think that just comes from, from deep uh, self-examination over time and knowing, examining your feelings and seeing your patterns through, you know, many different circumstances over a long period of time, you learn which one it is through intuition, you know, and I think that goes back to your starting point, Jeff, was uh, listening to yourself and being able to analyze what your intuition is telling you, because that's usually attached to pattern recognition of past experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: It's so tough to think back on those decisions that you've made to shut something down and, and you'll never know whether or not that thing right. would have been successful or yeah. if you would have just gotten stuck, you know, in that, in that state of perpetual mediocrity or whatever, you know, Yeah. and, uh, some, some people do. And, uh, yeah. it's, it's one of those things that you can never... I I think Seth Godin wrote a whole book about this. I I guess the dip is sort of this, right? Is it just, is it just a downtime for me in this project or, uh, is it time to look at doing something else?
1: Yeah. And I would say to that Corbett, like you don't, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if this thing was going to be the next world changing idea or a terrible thing. I think what matters to me is I quit this thing and my life didn't fall apart. And now this new thing that I want to quit or walk away from, I have all this fear And and the fear is like very primal. Like you're going to die. Everybody's going to hate you. It's going to be terrible. I'm like, wait, but this last time I did, it was just fine. Like it it worked out. And somebody told me that, you know, in in life, you don't manage your choices as much as you manage your regrets. And Jeff Bezos talked about that with starting Amazon. It was like, I wasn't going to regret failing. And he walked away from a great job at Wall Street. Uh, But he knew that the greater regret was not leaving Wall Street at 30. I mean, he was, you know, not young, you know, uh, as 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 the startup stories go, right? He wasn't Zuckerberg, um, but he he knew that the greater potential risk or the greater regret he faced was, I see an opportunity here, and if I don't chase this, even if it ends in failure, I'll regret not doing that versus leaving this nice cushy job. Uh, I love that we talk about
2: that all the time at ConvertKit about the difference between optimizing for upside versus avoiding downside. Mm. Yeah. And really thinking a lot about making choices to optimize for upside. And you have to know what upside you're looking for to do that. Right. But so often we make choices to avoid uh, the downside, you know, the scary part instead of uh, moving towards what's possible. Mm
0: -hmm. To uh, wrap up today, I have one other question for you guys, and this is based on something that Jeff wrote recently. Actually, Jeff, I like how you do blog posts that have a podcast embedded. So it's uh, a choose-your-format sort of situation. Um, yeah. This one was about starting with a few friends versus, or starting with a few friends who care, I think, as you said it, versus yeah. trying to reach everybody all at once. And and this is something I think everybody in the beginning struggles with. I need to build a big audience. You know, you mentioned earlier, what, what's big enough? 10, 100, 1,000, mm-hmm. 100,000? Mm-hmm. And if you start thinking in terms of 100,000, you can really end up with this just, diluted all over the place kind of message yeah so you you have a different approach to that tell us about that
1: well i i think i learned this or rather it was codified uh, by our mutual friend chase reeves and chase and i were at a conference years ago where like um somebody was asking him like how do you do this like how do you network and connect with people at conferences and he said you know um and he said it you know in a much raspier and funnier version than I'll say it uh, but he said you know like everybody wants to connect with like the influencer on stage and really what you ought to be doing is looking at all like all the people that you're sitting with right now and these are the people uh, some of them are going to be you know in 5 10 years rock stars and so connect well with the people that are at your level and as you guys keep up leveling you'll you know you'll help kind of raise each other up rising tide raises all ships that sort of thing and i realized oh that's what I was doing without realizing. That's what I was doing, which was certainly trying to find those influencers and patrons and mentors, and I found some of that. Uh, but so much success and audience growth really came as a result of finding a handful of people that I connected with at a deep level. And I, I realized this with conferences. I try to meet everybody and get all these business cards and not follow up with anybody. And so my goal at conferences became: what if I just like made five real connections? And then actually kept hanging out with them, right? So uh, one year, Corbett, you and I and, and a group of people hung out. We went on your boat. And then we, we went to this party. And we did this. And we did that. And it's like by the end of the weekend, like you've really made a deep connection, not with everybody, but with a handful of people you keep bumping into. And I actually think that's what marketing is. The job of a marketer, of an entrepreneur, because you're wearing all the hats at the beginning, is to find a handful of people who get it, your book, your book. Your business idea, somebody who's willing to pay you for something, and if you can delight those people, if you can over deliver on what you've promised, they're going to help you find more people. And um, I didn't, I didn't consciously do that, but looking back, I realized oh yeah, that's how this works. That's how life works. You know, that's how actual tribes are built is, you know, you get a family unit and they find another family unit and like you start protecting each other and people serve different roles and it grows from there. But it starts with permission and trust. Hey, can I share this with you? Sure. You do it. It's better than they expected. Now there's trust and now you have an opportunity to grow the thing.
0: And how do you translate that from, you you mentioned the real world, meeting people at conferences to producing content. How does that affect the way that you'd produce content?
1: I mean, I, I think if you're like trying to grow a blog or a podcast, uh, your goal is to find people to listen. And I don't think those are strangers. Those are, you know, what is that? Um, that law, every, you know, we can manage about 150 relationships at a time. Parkinson's law, or number, or something, um, whatever that is, some number by some dude with a name that we can't remember. Dread bar's number, yeah, of course Barrett knows it. Of course, it's, Barrett it's, knows it. it's Jeff Goins's number. It's uh, I just <laughs> came up with this. It's gonna be my next book, but like. <laughs> Like you pull out your phone, you have more than 150 people that you can text or email or contact on Facebook. And I actually think it's as simple as that. Like you've got a blog or a podcast. um, Great. Write one piece of content, record one podcast, produce one email, and then reach out to everybody that you can think of who might benefit from this. And if they don't hate it, it's a pretty good idea. Now, of course, there's all kinds of limitations. Well, I'm trying to do something that's not for my friends or my family and they don't get it. Uh-huh, I get it. But if you contact 150 people who love you for being you and you can't get 10 people to pay attention to this thing, it's not a good idea. And I think what a lot of people do is they go to the internet where they're just gonna find strangers and fans from nowhere. And, and somehow these ideas are gonna end up in people's inboxes and on their computers. And I don't think it works that way. You start with who knows you and you try to grow from there. And that's what, that's what I did with the blog. I reached out to friends and family and said, I'm going to start a blog. You might not be interested in it, but can I send it to you anyway? And they said, sure, that'd be, that'd be good.
0: Barrett, uh, over at ConvertKit, you tend to focus on, uh, depth of content. I mean, you, you, instead of just publishing a million blog posts, decided to do this magazine sort of format, um, which, you know, has tons of quality inside, you have great writers that requires a lot of patience especially when the business that you're running is signing up thousands of people every month and and asking yourself okay if i'm going to publish this magazine this like sort of you know curated special kind of content that's not really meant for the masses how is that going to make an impact on a business that's growing by 10 by by thousands or tens of thousands of customers every month how, where do you find the patience for that, and and how do you convince yourself and other people that the the path is something that's small in quality and curated versus trying to just run as fast as you can and publish a million things?
2: It's <sighs> so hard because the tendency is to be frenetic and to want everything to work right now, right? You especially when you're in a thing that you think should be growing faster. So the first thing is we earn the privilege by being profitable first. Um, We were already profitable in the business and we were really looking at how over a long period of time do we continue to build on that, build a foundational growth mechanism uh, for the company because we knew like for ConvertKit, our affiliate network works really well for us. So that's like one brick in our foundation. And then uh, organic search traffic works really well for us. And that's largely uh, branded or branded search traffic is how I should refer to that. Just people searching our name because of our affiliates. So there's kind of like the secondary effect. And so what we wanted to start doing was we wanted to build a longer term, non-branded way to reach new people. And um, through making content of my own, through making content at Fizzle, you know, I had all of these series of experiences where I realized, okay, number one, teaching people like creators is a very crowded market online. It's a very challenging thing to break through the noise on. So that was the first thing I knew to be true. The second thing I knew to be true was the world does not need another million article a year content factory. It just sucks. Like I have all my own personal opinions about that. And that goes back to the taste thing. I don't want to create something that I don't want to exist in the world. And so at the intersection of those two things, it was like, all right, well, what if we took a very thoughtful approach and what if over two the initial thing this started almost three years ago now at the beginning of was this 2019, 2016, beginning of 2016, we said, let's aim to make the textbook. That would be the definitive foundational knowledge for any creator getting started building a business. And that way, they don't have to go filter through thousands of articles to figure out the right one for them. It would just be like, look, read them in this order. And if this was the only thing you read, which is not what anyone actually does, but just conceptually, this was the only thing you read, you would have the basics or the fundamentals that you would need to get started building a business online. And we said, all right, great. So in two years, we can pick 24 topics, one a month. There will be eight to 12 articles per topic that will combine into a PDF or an online magazine type format. And it also took this thing that I knew from our time together at Fizzle that was that uh, category pages around a topic work really well for search traffic because they aggregate a bunch of resources and then uh, narrate a story around how they all connect together. And search engines really like that. And so I was able to combine like the sense of taste, optimizing for search traffic, and then a long-term view to say, all right, I think this format could work. And now, almost three years later, that foundation of content. We've broken through the noise. We rank really well for a lot of the articles. And every month that non-branded search traffic grows to those articles. But we had to put in two years of work before we really started seeing a whole bunch of results. And we had to suffer a lot of both internal and external criticism. Like, why are you doing it that way? It's so very weird that you would take that approach. And we just had to stay the course and say, look, we're doing this for two years. We're committed to it. If nothing else, there will be some number of creators who take this, read everything that we write, and they'll have foundational knowledge. And we trust that at a minimum, that is enough for us to have done that for that number of people. But you know, we designed it so that over time, hopefully a lot more people would benefit and just happen to pay off. You know, But it was based on foundational principles that we knew we could trust.
0: Jeff, uh, what's your content schedule like these days? I I know that you have a podcast, you have a blog. How frequently are you publishing?
1: About once a week. Um, Not super religious on that anymore. Used to do it once a day um, for the first two years Then went to maybe three pieces a week. Now I do one long form article, about 2000 words, and I do a podcast on it. I don't, I did the thing where like you write the essay and then read the essay. I find that really boring and not interesting. And so I I basically take the notes from the article and kind of riff on it and turn it into like a little mini talk that'll be 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, And then I do a a newsletter once a week around that. And then if we're doing some sort of promotion or something, I may do, you know, I may increase the frequency a little bit from there. About once a month, I'll promote something for sale. um, And that's kind of the flow of content, but it's about one piece a week. Um, and we budget for like four to six pieces of content per month, including, um, the email, like that a piece of content is broken up into blog post, article, and email.
0: And Barry, you guys are still primarily just focused on writing, right? Are you, you don't have podcast or video content over there yet?
2: Yeah, so we did this uh, series a while back called I Am a Blogger that was a series of um, eight little, a docu-series, I guess. Six to eight-minute documentaries about a number of our customers. So we're going to start serializing that. We're going to be coming out with one per month in 2020, and that's going to be a perpetual thing from here on out. We just plan to create one new installment of that series. We'll probably rename it uh, because we're broader than bloggers now. Yep. and then, yeah, we're going to be starting a couple of podcasts in 2022. So now that we've got that written foundation, now we're saying, okay, we got that under control. We kind of have a system for that. Now let's go add to it. You know, Now that we've really nailed this one piece of it, now we can try and you know take that Pat Flynn approach of being everywhere because we know we're a little bit more experienced as a content team. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. We're going to try and start layering on top the the video and the audio side of things.
0: Barrett Brooks, thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, Corb.
0: Jeff Goins as well. Thank you for being here.
1: Always a pleasure. Good to chat with you guys.
0: You can find more uh, from Barrett over at BarrettBrooks.com, and you can find Jeff over at GoinsWriter.com. As always, you can find links to everything that we talked about today over at Fizzleshow.co. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.